Hello and welcome to the Adventure Podcast. This podcast is about helping listeners learn from and meditate on our sermons from anywhere at any time. Thanks for joining and let's get started. So there is so much stuff that sneaks into our homes that we don't challenge. And when we have kids at home and we don't challenge it in their presence, it shouldn't surprise us when they go off to a secular school system and go off to a secular university and come back and question everything we've taught them because we never challenge the lies. And I want to work over this with you for the next 12 weeks on challenging some of these lies that we're going to call myths. In November 11th, National Public Radio posted a feature article on their website in their opinion section. What they do is they have these debates. It's called The Greatest Minds in the World Debate Great Topics and so forth. And in this opinion section article, they were recapping a debate on the question of would the world be better off without religion? And when the audience was polled after the debate, 59% of the audience agreed that the world would be better off without religion. Mind you, it's an NPR audience. They call themselves the New Atheist, and they have literally engaged with various forms of popular media from authors to singers to writers to uh, streaming platforms to undermine and to kill the credibility of religions, especially Christianity. In 2004, Sam Harris published The End of Faith, uh, The End of Faith, colon, Religions, Terror, and the Future of Reason. He later published what he called A Letter to a Christian Nation, in which he tried to show you that there's nothing about Christianity that is rational or logical. In 2006, Richard Dawkins released a book called The God Delusion, which remained on the New York Times bestseller list for 51 weeks. In 2008, Christopher Hitchens continued his attack on God with this, God is not great, how religion poisons everything. Now, does religion poison everything. Now, a lot of times we think, well, there's some religions we could do out, especially religions where the people go boom when they don't like you, right? And so we're okay with wiping out that particular religion, except here in the States, they're not talking about that religion. <laughs> they're talking about you. They're talking about me. So this vocal group has declared Christianity at best irrelevant and at worst poison, toxic. So the strategy among the new atheists has been fourfold. Edit reality, erase the evidence, rewrite history, and suggest unsupported alternatives, unsupported by the facts. Kind of an alternate, it's kind of turning into the Marvel universe 
where everything can just go any way it wants and it's all fine. Now, let me ask you a couple questions. How are they editing, how are they erasing history? So in 2016, there was the Reason Rally, which was held at the Washington Monument in Washington, or the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. And in that, you can go watch it online, go look it up on YouTube. In that Reason Rally, several speakers attempted to reframe Martin Luther King's March on Washington as a completely secular event, ignoring the fact that it was led by the guy who was arguably the most powerful Christian pastor in America. And in the pictures behind him are other Christian pastors and that the people who marched there marched there singing church songs. A 2016 Atlantic article tried to explain why the British tell better children's stories. Now, I love Roald Dahl. Okay, he's hysterical. Um, but let's go to the article. It cited as evidence the Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia as examples of stories shaped by British paganism, leaving out that Tolkien and Lewis were passionate followers of Jesus Christ and that both of their, both of their storylines were based on the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. J.K. Rowling, also referenced on the side of British paganism, chose not to disclose publicly her own fragile Christian faith until the last Harry, Harry Potter book had been published because she was afraid if people knew she was Christian, they could predict the last book. You seen the last book? What happens to Harry the hero? He dies and he comes back. In the 2018 film version of Madeline Lyangle's A Wrinkle in Time, they completely expunged the Christian references that are in the original story about a battle between, guess what, good and evil across the universe. Well, how are they suggesting an alternative reality? Margaret Atwood's 1985 dystopian novel, The Handmaid's Tale imagines a New England ruled by an imaginary, this is where it gets chaotic, pseudo-Christian Taliban-like sect named the Sons of Jacob. So they got all three big religions in there. And in that story, there's this giant, massive war. Everyone's wiped out. They're trying to repopulate the earth. Women's banks, bank accounts are suspended Women are forbidden to learn to read. Women are not allowed to have jobs. Now, does that sound anything like what you've ever known in America? No, that sounds like Afghanistan, right? Which is not Christian. And the women that are still fertile after this nuclear fallout are each assigned to men who seek to ceremonially impregnate them in some imaginary thing that the author contrived about Abraham impregnating Sarah's handmaid, Hagar. 
The story is inspired by the 1980 Islamic Revolution in Iran, except that it envisions a repressive Taliban-like Christian regime. One of my distant cousins, Ian Liston, appeared in several movies, including The Empire Strikes Back. He was Jansen in that one. They brought down one of the big walkers on the battle for Hoth. <laughs> so proud of him for that. Um, <laughs> I mean, how many people do you know dropped a walker? Um, he was in A Bridge Too Far. He was Sergeant Whitney in A Bridge Too Far. Uh, but he was also on one of my, my old favorite shows, Doctor Who. I still enjoy Doctor Who. But you have to understand going in, Doctor Who carries openly anti-Christian themes. Angels who feed on the lifespans of humans, headless monks, it's all a metaphor, headless monks who are ruled by a brainless faith. The church of the 51st century is a military operation. And on and on the list goes of these streaming shows, of movies, of books, of music that are all inviting us to reject the concept of religion, specifically Christianity, and also inviting us to try to delete or pretend it didn't happen the positive influence of Christianity on the development of culture and the negative influence on culture of when people have rejected Christianity. So the result in your notes. The result, Christ, as Christ followers, basically we have slowly surrendered our faith. We have, we've not engaged, we've quit engaging. And it looks like the media, I mean the media makes it look like we are a small crowd of people, like we are the outliers in the world, and we are not. In 2019, the largest pre-COVID survey, <laughs> who'd ever thought we'd use the words pre-COVID for anything? In 2019, the largest pre-COVID survey of incoming freshmen to U.S. universities found that 33.6 claimed no religious affiliation, listing themselves as atheists, agnostics, or nuns. Not like penguin-looking nuns, all right? Not Catholic nuns, nun being N-O-N-E-S. Like, what's your religion? None. <laughs> I have none religion. That's kind of what that is. I don't have a religion. That number of 33.6 has doubled from 14.6 in 2006. And you know, when you start hearing numbers like that, it can make us want to withdraw back because it sounds like we're this small minority. And it gives us this temptation to want to, let's just cede all of that to the, the unbelievers. Yet 66.4 of U.S. college students still identify as religious. Two-thirds still identify as religious. More than half still identify as Christian. And historically, black universities, 76.6, more than three out of four students still identify as Christian. And only one in, actually less than one in five, identify as agnostic, atheist, or none. So are most people accepting this idea that Christianity is, on its best day, irrelevant, and on its worst day, just simply poison. Can I tell you this? 
by their own research against Christianity, the answer would be no. People are not buying it. Now, some are buying it slowly. I'll tell you who they are. They're the kids that we have failed to disciple in our own homes. Think about this. Who's discipling your kids? Whoever spends the most time with your kids is discipling your kids. Now, what is it that makes a life of faith so powerful, so appealing to us that in the face of all this barrage of stuff from the media, some of us still choose faith? All right, let me, let me, let me give you some obvious things. This list is not exhaustive, but there's more evidence out there, and I'm going to use some of their evidence in this, that Christianity is good for all of us. All right, first thing, A. Here's, here's one of the reasons we follow it. The peace that comes with faith is good for my health. That's the first thing. Let's go ahead and go to eight. There we go. Thanks. The peace that comes with faith is good for my health. Philippians chapter four. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he's done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Keep putting them into practice all you, or keep putting into practice all you learned and received from me, everything you heard from me and saw me doing. Then the God of peace will be with you. So while the communists and the socialists have called religion the opium of the people, objective scholarly studies show otherwise. So in 2016, Harvard School of Public Health professor Tyler Vanderweel and journalist John John Sniff wrote a a USA Today op-ed piece that actually borrows from Karl Marx's statement about religion being the opium of the people in a negative way, and they take it and they actually mock it and talk about religion from the other angle. Their, their title is, Religion May Be a Miracle Drug. Here's what they said. Here's how the article starts. If one could conceive of a single elixir to improve the physical and mental health of millions of Americans at no personal cost, what value would our society place on it? And then the authors actually go through the article and they outline the mental and the physical health benefits associated with regular religious participation, which in America is going to be mostly going to church, right? Even to the extent of Attending church regularly reduces mortality rates 20 to 30 percent over a 15 year period. Church going people tend to outlive non church going people. That's the research, that's the scientific study. Research suggests that those who regularly attend services are more optimistic, have lower rates of depression, are less likely to commit suicide, have a greater purpose in life, are less likely to divorce, and demonstrate more self-control. See, to say that religion is 
bad for you is like saying drugs are bad for you, but not distinguishing between crystal meth and penicillin. (laughs) Statistically, religious participation appears to be good for health and happiness. In fact, if you look at it from this perspective, based on that study, one could actually make the case that the rejection of religion is creating a public health crisis. All right. By the way, just so you know, the first hospitals were created by Christians in the fourth century. We did that. 90% of the hospitals in Africa were founded by churches. The first medical people in the battle against HIV AIDS were Christians funded by churches to figure out what was going on. 50% of the hospitals in Africa are still faith-based. In some countries, it's as high as 70%. In the U.S., one in five hospitals is church-related. Wow, that sure sounds toxic to me, doesn't it? All right, next thing, B. My faith-based relationships protect me emotionally. You ever have a friend message you on Facebook and say, quit saying that stuff? You need to delete that post? You need to knock off that attitude? Galatians chapter 6. Dear brothers and sisters, If another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should, watch the adverbs, gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into that same temptation yourself. Now watch. Share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. What is that law? Love your neighbor as yourself. Faith fosters relationships, and relationships matter. The director of another Harvard study, the Harvard Study of Adult Development, was a 75-year study of well-being. They followed people from the cradle to the grave and mixed in a whole bunch of other people and followed them through their lifespans as well. And here's how they summarize their findings. I quote them. Good relationships keep us happier and healthier, period. And throughout that study, the participants all expected that they would find at the end of their lives that the thing that made them happiest was their wealth, their achievements, some kind of fame or something like that. But what the study found out was that the healthiest people prioritized relationships with family, with friends, and with the community, all things that are the natural byproducts of a person's life who follows Christ. All right, next thing, C. My faith teaches me giving is better than getting. And there's some maturity involved in that, because you'll notice a lot of you, when you were kids, what were you excited about at Christmas? getting as you get older especially when you introduce the grand brats what are you excited about giving because you've matured watch this from acts chapter 20 and i have been a constant example of how you can help those in need by working hard 
You should remember the words of the Lord Jesus, it is more blessed to than to a growing body of mental health research confirms that giving is good for us. This has been the premise of Christianity for 2,000 years. Secular, meaning not religious, not church-related, secular studies show that. Volunteering has a positive impact on our mental and physical health. Actively caring for others yields greater and physical greater uh, physical and psychological benefits than being cared for. Helping others in the workplace improves career satisfaction. And financial generosity has psychological payoffs. Now, the atheist, I want to emphasize this, the atheist social psychologist, Jonathan Haidt, observes this. He says, Surveys have long shown that religious believers in the United States are happier, healthier, live longer, and are more generous to charity and to each other than are secular people, meaning non-religious people, non-Christian people. Religious believers give more money than secular folk to secular charities and to their neighbors. They give more of their time to and they give more blood. Huh. By the way, according to the Almanac of American Philanthropy, the average American citizen, so this is across even all the deadbeats you know, all right? The average American donates seven times as much to charity as the average European per capita. Per person, even after you adjust for differences in household income, Americans donate twice as much of their income as the Dutch, three times as much as the French, five times as much as the Germans, and ten times that of the Italians. Which might explain why Italian restaurants are so pricey. <laughs> D. My faith shows me that I work best when I work for something bigger than me. I want to be part of something that's going to outlive me, right? That's how we think. In the first century, very few people had the freedom to make a choice about what they were going to do for a living. So when you were born, man, I'll tell you what, if your dad liked farming sheep, you best be liking the smell of sheep because <laughs> it was going to be with you till they stuck you in the ground. <laughs> If your father fished, man, you better like fishing. If your father worked with carpentry stuff, you were going to be learning carpentry skills whether you wanted to or not. And while they may not have been in control of what they were going to do for a living, how they were going to survive, while they weren't in control of their position, Scripture says we're all in control of how we handle our position. Watch this from Colossians 3. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do. Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. Serve them sincerely because of your reverent fear of who? The Lord. Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for who? The Lord rather than people. Remember that 
Say, it's the Lord. The Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward. And that master you are serving is actually who? Christ. Listen, the Bible is not condoning slavery. Understand that? We're going to get into that in a few weeks because some people go, oh, how can I follow a book that condones slavery? The Bible does not condone slavery. And we'll get into that when we get there in a few weeks. But you've got to understand, Paul's audience, some guesstimate that 90% of all the Christians in the first couple of hundred years of Christianity, all of the Christians, or 90% of all the Christians, were slaves. They weren't free people. They were servants. So what he's doing here is he's reminding them, you can't control what's happening around you, but you control what's happening where? In you. And he's also reminding them, yeah, this life kind of sucks. But this isn't the only life there is. There's more than just this life. You know, the thing I love about that commandment, slaves, you know, do your best work for your masters, is that even though you and I today are not slaves, we can understand that command, right? We've all worked with bosses who thought that we were slaves. No question about that. But what this is about, this is about purpose. This is about being a part of something bigger than just us. Bigger than just me, bigger than just you. See, today's mental health research suggests that humankind needs meaningful work to thrive. We have to know we're accomplishing something. Let me stress this again. Atheist, sociologist, Jonathan Haidt, Observe the attitudes of janitors emptying bedpans and cleaning up vomit in a hospital. Those who saw themselves as part of the team caring for the sick and who went above and beyond to do their job with excellence saw their work as a calling and found it more rewarding than those who just worked for the paycheck. So the reality is whether we're doing brain surgery or washing out bedpans, we can choose to connect our hearts into something bigger than just that work. We can be part of a larger purpose, and it's going to bring us more satisfaction. All right, E. My faith teaches me that I could be happy anywhere regardless of my physical circumstances. Regardless of my physical circumstances. So after repeated experiences of being imprisoned, being beaten, being flogged, being handcuffed, being chained, the Apostle Paul writes these words from prison, Philippians 4. How I praise the Lord that you're concerned about me again. I know you, you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Not that I was ever in need, for I've learned how to be content with whatever I have. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I've learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or empty, with plenty or little. For I can do everything through, through Christ who gives me strength. 
Modern psychology, modern psychology suggests that we have a highly developed ability to choose happiness even in what most would consider unhappy situations. Harvard psychologist Daniel Gilbert calls this the psychological immune system. Now listen carefully, because I get such a kick out of this. So to illustrate that we have a psychological immune system, he quotes 17th century writer Tom Brown. Here's what Tom Brown said. I am the happiest man alive. I have that in me that can convert poverty to riches, adversity to prosperity. I am more invulnerable than Achilles. Fortune hath not one place to hit me. So Gilbert then goes on and he asks this. What kind of remarkable machinery does this guy have in his head? Well, it turns out it's precisely the same remarkable machinery that all of us have. Unfortunately, Gilbert, a self-proclaimed atheist, does not mention that he is quoting Brown's theological memoir which is based on the Christian values of faith, hope, and love. So they want to use a, they want to make an argument using Christian stuff, but they want to take the cause out. There's a remarkable correspondence between the psychological immune system Gilbert talks about and what the Bible calls contentment. Christianity repeatedly teaches us to choose gratitude. 1 Thessalonians 5, always be joyful, never stop praying, be thankful in all circumstances for, why? This is God's will for you who belong to Christ Jesus. He wants you to choose that happiness. But see, for the Christian, gratitude isn't a practice and positive mental attitude technique. For the Christ follower, it is a deep disposition toward a life-giving, life-saving God. Now, here's the last thing, F. My faith teaches me to overlook and to forgive offenders. We are not the first people to live in a culture of cancel everything we don't like. We are not the first we're the first to see it so widely spread because it comes into us through everything now. But Jesus lived in a bit of a cancel culture. <laughs> so Peter, Peter was always worried that he wouldn't impress Jesus. Peter was pretty insecure. And so Peter came to Jesus one day with a hot topic. I don't know if it came from the coffee shop or the barber shop or the fish stand, but it was one that was being discussed everywhere. And there were rabbis who were debating, and then people were debating what the rabbis were debating. How many times do you have to forgive that jerk at work? And so Peter's trying to impress Jesus and sound like, hey, look here, man, I'm like, I'm like all right now. Matthew 18. Lord, when my fellow believer sins against me, you notice he doesn't want to get into whether or not he has to forgive people who are not believers. <laughs> He's trying to avoid it because he doesn't want to. 
When my fellow believer sins against me, how many times must I forgive him? Should I forgive him as many as seven times? Because that was the magic number that was burning up the coffee shops. All right. That was on their internet, their interweb forums. Jesus answered, I tell you, you must forgive him more than seven times. You must forgive him even if he wrongs you 70 times seven. I can already see Peter starting to break out fingers and toes to figure out what that means. But Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Father, forgive us as we forgive those who sin against us. As he's being nailed to the cross, remember what Jesus said? Father, what? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing right now. They don't get the big picture. So Jesus grounded human forgiveness in the radical forgiveness of God, arguing that forgiven people must forgive people. Don't you think that would make the world a better place if we could do that? You don't know my brother-in-law. <laughs> right? Because that's what we do. You don't know. I've tried. Not really. You haven't. Because if you would have tried, you would have succeeded. Again, this forgiveness turns out to be for our good. One of the studies found that forgiveness, particularly forgiveness not dependent on the actions of the offender, has been linked to multiple positive mental and physical health outcomes. Listen, I cannot imagine if the world is the way it is with Christianity, I cannot imagine what it would be like without Christianity. It would be a massive free-for-all. We would not know the peace that we have today. See, it is important that we engage those around us and that we are able to intelligently answer their questions, that we are intelligently able to engage in discussion using facts and logic to refute the myths that are literally intended to prevent them from finding Christ. Sometimes we have to help remove the barriers that stand between them and Christ. The apostle Peter wrote, he says, listen, you need to be ready to give a defense. You need to be ready to share. Always be prepared to explain intelligently the reason for the hope that is within you when someone asks you. And be prepared to do it gently and with respect. Listen, that's, that's the goal for this series, is to help you deal with some of these things and educate you in the reality so you can respond to the myth so that you can protect your children and your grandchildren from the outside world as it tries to shake their faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God of reason. We thank you that you're the God who created intelligence. In fact, Father, the first scientists, the first what we call the true scientists today, actually were, were Christ followers, were people who loved you. 
and they were delving into the mechanics of how things work and testing it and writing theories and testing the theories and changing the theories because they wanted to understand how you put things together. Father, help us to be able to reason with people on a level of respect and compassion with some intelligence to diffuse the things that block them from finding you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.